I have prayed for a long time that I would uh, live to see a genuine revival. I think that I have been close to some in the past, a real genuine moving of the Spirit of God upon a church. And I have prayed that before I die, that God would allow me to pastor a church that experienced a revival that was truly uh, like that which has been experienced rarely in history has literally changed the course of men and of, uh, of nations. And I don't know um, when that will come, where, where it will happen, but I'm praying that God will allow me to be there when it happens. And I believe that a careful study of, um, of revivals of history in the church reveal, reveals that there are certain things that always are a part of a genuine revival. There have been circumstances that are very much alike that demand revival. Now, those circumstances, by way of review, we talked about this morning, where there was... In, in the communities, spiritual confusion. There wasn't a clear-cut witness for God. There was inconsistency so that the people who came inside the church were confused when they got outside the church because they did not see a consistency among the people who represented God outside of where they were in worship on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day. It was a time, it has been a time of, of perverted perception when, when the voice of God was not heard and the vision was lost. The scripture says that where there is no vision, the people perish. You look at history, the times of the great awakenings of revival, and you'll find that it always, it, they, they always came on the heels of those times when People were wandering in the famine of the Word of God and were, were um, running to and fro to find some light for their darkness. It sounds very much like our time. And it was a time of religious destitution when people had come to the end of themselves. They'd come to understand, to find that there is no real fulfillment and satisfaction in a worldly pursuit and they came to the end of themselves to find that they had, um, they had neglected the house of prayer and they had despised the altar of God and they had uh, disdained the law of God. And so he shut the door and the die was set and they lamented when it was too late. Then I think that in every revival there are some attendants to that revival. That is, some conditions that have to be met before that before that condensation of the Spirit of God upon a church, the doing of, the, of, of God on the church, as it were. I think one of them is that we must return to the Lord with our whole heart. And when God spoke His last word, when Christ spoke His last word to the churches in Revelation, He talked about, you have left your first love. Return to the... To the lover that has espoused you with your whole heart. Now I suppose that 
that we are more active than we've ever been. I know that I am. I'm busier than I've ever been at the church. And as I go down the halls of this church and I see all the staff people that we have and each one committed to the ministries of this church and involving the people here in our church, and I go into these committee meetings that we have and there's been somebody here since 4.30 this afternoon meeting in committee. We're busier than we've ever been. And we are here. Our bodies are here, but I wonder if our heart is here. I wonder if our heart is in it. We are here, but is our heart there? Is our love there? Is our affection there? Is our devotion there? Is our joy there? We need to return to the, to the Lord with our heart. And then I think there's a second condition that has to be met. That is, we must remove the strange gods that are among us. The strange gods. It's not strange that we have a God. Every man does. But the gods we have are strange. It's not the God who saved us that we, where we devote our energies and our time. Not the God who brought us out of a captivity worse than death. Not perhaps the God who has brought us to a land of promise and has blessed us more than any church, perhaps, more than at any time in our life, we have blessings of God. And we worship the strange God who has no eyes or hands or heart or ears. So remove the strange gods from among you. Now we come to the new part where we will deal tonight. Third condition, I think, is not only the return and remove, but the rededication of life to God. And he says there in the text that they came together and they brought a water and they poured it out before the Lord. And that act has no parallel in the Old Testament. It was not done in the Old Testament. It was not a normal sacrifice. It signifies contrition, but it goes further than contrition and humility. It signified dedication. For water that is poured out and spilt upon the ground cannot be gathered up again. And the life that is poured out before the Lord as an oblation is not to be gathered up again. A life that has been given to God is not to be lived for self any longer. And I don't understand all that's involved in this, this symbolical act, but I know that it was important to these people as they returned to the Lord with their whole heart and they... And they removed the strange gods among them and then they poured out this water as a symbol of their dedication to God. And I think that what it means is that they finally decided they were going to get serious about their relationship with Him. I wonder how many of us tonight are, are playing at this thing. We play church. And it's a game for some of us. Kind of a kind of a tag game that we play. And I'm here to tell you that before revival can ever come, the people of God are, are, will, will, will surely have to get serious about their relationship to Him. And I think that involves something like some time alone with God every day. I think it involves some walking in the light of God's leadership every day. I think it involves some commitments that you and I have not been willing to make 
And sometimes when I think about what will happen when revival truly comes, I don't know whether I'm ready for that or not. I don't know whether I'm, I'm, uh, I'm serious enough about this uh, for that. Because whenever revival truly comes to a town and to a church and to a life, we can never be the same again. And there's some of the, some of the trifles and the, and the trivials that are so much a part of our life are no longer welcome when revival comes. I had a friend who was pastoring a little church called Ira Ann. Now that, you can tell by the name. That's one of your major cities in West Texas. And, and he couldn't explain it, nor could anyone else explain it. But God in His sovereign choice decided that He would come in power upon that town, upon that church. And the result of the Spirit of God breathing upon them and falling upon them literally changed the life of that preacher and everybody he knew. It meant that way in the hours of the morning, for weeks and months after that period of, of revival meetings, people were coming to his house and, and, and discussing their problems and, and dealing with their sin before God. He even had to deal with his own sin before God. That was so painful. And he told me, if I really knew the consequences of God really sending revival, I don't know whether I'd have prayed for it like I prayed for it or not. When you pour out your life before God, you are not to gather it up again. You are no longer to live for self. You live for self no longer. I don't know whether we're ready for that or not. Are you ready for somebody to call the shots in your life? Are you ready for Him to be Lord? I mean Lord. Are you ready for the infilling of the Holy Spirit and the controlling of God on your life? Are you ready for that? Are you ready for Him to make the decision where you'll spend the next week? Are you ready for Him to say whether you'll buy that or not? Are you ready for Him to say, I want you to go to this person and confess your feeling toward that person? Are you ready for that? Are you ready to get down in the dust? I don't know whether we're ready for that or not. And so they poured out their oblation to God. Paul did it. That's what he's talking about in the New Testament. There's a third condition. That is, there is the recognition of sin in life. And verse 6 says, And they went to Mizpah, and they stood and said, We have sinned. Um, I got this letter one time, and, and this man, in a loving way, um, kind of rebuked me for some of the, um, some of the things I had said in a sermon. And in this letter, he, he, he was driving at this. He was coming at it from this angle. The angle was this. I don't think I have anything in my life that is displeasing to God. And I resent you saying that I do. Um, and so... As I, as I come to this, this verse, as I looked at it over this last week, um, how do you deal with a statement like this? I have sinned, you know. 
And I'm not going to stand here in this pulpit and say tonight, you know, you're guilty of this and you're guilty of that. You're guilty of this. But I am going to stand here and say that I am. I have sinned. Um, can we say it tonight? Is it, will it come out of our mouths? I have sinned against God. I have pride. And I'm impatient. And I'm angry sometimes. I lose my temper with my children. I have sinned. I, um, can you say that? Can you, can you enumerate? Can you confess your sin before God? I have a root of bitterness. I have anger at my brother, some of the people sitting in this very congregation. Can you say that? Is that true about you? I have gossiped with my mouth. I have said things that were cruel about members of my own fellowship and family. Can we say that? I have sinned. I'm not talking about um, smoking and dipping and dancing. <laughs> I have sinned. It seems to me that in every revival that I know anything about, somewhere in the midst of that revival, but Im are immediately preceding it, someone was beating his breast and saying, I have sinned against God and I'm sorry. Fosdick has a marvelous sermon entitled The Rediscovery of Sin. That's an intriguing title, isn't it? In this sermon, he makes this statement, quote, Today, all our hopes and our efforts at goodness have come up against a powerful antagonism which has changed our greatest qualities to evil and all of our efforts at goodness to failure. Our forefathers called it sin. You may have a better name for it. Use it if you have, but acknowledge the awful fact of its reality. And A.W. Tozer makes that deep and profound statement, all things being equal, a Christian will have spiritual progress to the degree he's willing to be honest with himself. Let's be honest with ourselves. We have sin in our life. And if there's not pride, and if there's not gossip, and if there's not a root of bitterness, and if there has not been uh, resentment, and if there have not been quarrels that have not been reconciled, at least we have known to do good and we have not done it, and to, do, to know it and not do it is sin. We have sinned. And the New Hebrides revival began in 1950, and it was a revival. I'm told that Duncan Campbell preached for a year, twice a day, every day, till he lost his voice. He spoke at chapel, a broken man caught up in the sweeping of the New Hebrides revival. I'm told that fishermen would be out in the, out in the, out in the ocean, out in the, in the gulf, and they would just be out there alone, and the, and the waves of that revival would sweep out to them. I want to read you an account of that. 
One morning, about two o'clock in the morning, these seven men were praying, and one man read this psalm, Psalm 24, 3 through 5. Listen to it. Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood. I, I, I did a little study of this, of this passage. That word means, that statement means, who has not committed himself to things that are false. And the things that are false are the things that will not pass the test of, of, of timelessness. Who has not committed, lifted up his soul to falsehood. Who has not given himself to junk and things that will pass away and has not sworn deceitfully. You know what that means? It means to say you're one thing and be another. Who will stand in the holy place? A man who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, and has not sworn deceitfully. He will receive a blessing from the Lord. Now, listen, quote. He closed the Bible, and looking at his companions on their knees before God, he cried, Brethren, it is just so much humbug to be waiting thus night after night, month after month, if we ourselves are not right with God. I must ask myself, is my heart pure or my hands clean? And at that moment, something happened. The historian said God swept into that prayer group and at that wonderful moment, seven elders discovered what they evidently had not discovered before, that revival must be related to holiness. They found themselves in the searching power of the presence of God and discovered things about themselves they had never suspected but the blood of Calvary heals and cleanses. These men found themselves lifted to the realm of the supernatural. These men knew that revival had come. And Isaiah said, We're all infected and impure with sin. And when we put on our prized robes of righteousness, we discover they're all just filthy rags. And our, and, and our uh, lives and, and like... And our sins, like the winds, have swept us away, and no one calls upon the name of the Lord. We have sinned. And when we begin to confess that sin before God, because He burns our heart with it, something will happen like happened over at my friend Bill Flanders' church in Bed, Bed, Bedford, Texas. And he said, Gerald, just one night in a little Sunday night service, all of a sudden, somebody stood up and said, I can stand it no longer. I have sinned in my life. And began to confess that sin to God. And they have never ceased from revival since that day. Now don't hasten to do it. Don't hurry it. Let the consciousness of sin wound you. And let, and let godly sorrow work her work of healing. And if you have 
And if you have offended, do what you can for reconciliation. And if you need to make restitution, make restitution. And, and bring your life in line with the Sermon on the Mount. And I suggest that we do this soul searching on our knees and rise to be obedient to God and then look for the refreshing rain from heaven. The recognition of sin. You know, this sermon may take three, three sermons. There's one other thing, one other condition that is to reclaim the blessing of God in prayer. Did you notice in the text? They said, cry to the Lord daily, continuously, and He will save us. And Samuel said, I will cry to the Lord, and he did. Sam said it in our announcement period this morning. There can be no revival apart from praying people. You turn over to the 14th chapter of John's Gospel, and these are the words of Jesus. This is His promise. Whatever I do, you shall do, and greater works than I, that I've done, you'll do. Now that's the most profound, that's the most remarkable statement in the Scripture. The works that I do, you will do, and greater works than I do, you will do. Are, are we seeing that happen in our time? I don't, I don't think so. How, how is it possible that we could do greater works than Jesus? That we could equal and exceed His work? You read the next verse. The words, this next verse starts with the word and that connects it to that statement. And the verse says, And whatever you ask in my name, the Father will do it, that He might be glorified in the Son. And the secret of doing greater works than Jesus did is in prayer. For every revival that has ever come has been preceded by a period of intercession and prayer. And Pentecost came because they were all together in one accord and they were praying in one mind and they prayed the revival down. Down upon your knees, O First Baptist Church of Durant. Down upon your knees. And Thursday night we'll gather together and what I fear is that we'll gather together for another activity, another busy meeting as we gather together for prayer. And sometimes my, 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 uh, my body says, not another meeting. But I'm hoping that we'll gather together over this town on Thursday night in these prayer cells and we'll be down upon our knees and upon our faces and we'll get serious about praying revival to Durant. Until we pray Him down. Oh, the psalmist said, would you open heaven and come down? Let's hurry to the last that is, the achievements of revival. The characteristics that always accompany revival, and they are three, are four. First, look at verse 10. There was victory. There was victory. Now I want you to notice something about this. I hope you noticed it in the, uh, in the reading of the text, that the battle took place on the old battlefield. Now that's significant. If you'll look sometime, just flip back to chapter 4, you'll see 
that they had already had a battle with the Philistines and 4,000 Israelis were murdered. 4,000 men. And they were going to go out now and do battle on the same battlefield again, the same place as before. But there was one noticeable difference. Even before Israel approached the battlefield in Mizpah, God thundered and, light, and lightning flashed and he, and he frightened these Philistines and they fled before Israel, the Scripture says. They fled before Israel so that Israel didn't even have to fight the battle. They just had to pursue these fleeing foes as the lightning flashed behind them. And you notice that they were smitten before the victors and not by them. I want you to hang on to that. Because there's some of us tonight who have been battling some, the same old battles day after day, year after year. And we know our common battleground, don't we? We know where we have our battles. For some of us, it's a debilitating habit. For others of us, it's, it's a spirit of bitterness that we've wrestled with and battled with. For others, it's a, it's a, it's a gossiping tongue. For others of us, it's, a, it's an angry heart. We've battled and battled and battled. It can be different. On the old battlefields, the victory belongs to God. You don't even have to fight the battle. And so let no one say, I always come out second best. I always am defeated. There's not any use for me to try any longer. We can exalt in the victory because the battle belongs to Him. And I want, and so do you, I think, that this battleground here will become the place of victory where every foe is defeated. And I want people to come in here who are sick and find healing. And I want marriages to come in here on Sunday, on Wednesday, and find reconciliation. And I want men and women who who have struggled with problems that are too deep to even utter. And I look out on Sunday morning and I wonder, how in the world do you preach to these people? What do you say that will touch the gamut of people that sit out there and all the problems? And then I realize it's not what anyone says. People just come, for people just to come and in the presence of God find their problems healed. Oh, don't you long for that. For the victory to be God's. And there was not only victory, there was vision. Before that, let me back up and digress to say there was vindication. And verses 13 and 14 say that when revival came in Samuel's time, the whole course of the nation was changed. And the Amorites became the friends of the Israelis. Isn't that amazing? Well, the Scripture says 
And when you do things pleasing to God, He even makes your enemies your friend. There was reconciliation between two vowed enemies. There was vindication. And the whole nation was, was changed. The direction and the tenure of the nation and its temper was completely changed. Now, I'm not going to try to pretend or say that, that I know anything about political or social reform. I don't. But I do believe that there is enough evidence for, the, for an illiterate to read and discover and to know that the answer to the ills of this nation is in the reviving of God's people, the salt of the earth. Now, if you think we don't have problems in Durant, you're wrong. I'm no expert, but I do get around a little bit. I've been to a goat roping a couple of times. I have been a few places, and I know we have problems in Durant. We have a drug problem in Durant. And we have an alcohol problem in Durant. And we have a sin problem in Durant. And I'm here to tell you, that the only solution to these problems is in a returning to the Lord who created us. And the solution to these problems is in the revival that we need. It changes things. F.B. Meyer said, there's never been a religious revival that has not issued in social and political reforms. Did you know that it was that the abolition of slavery followed a revival? And the end of child labor was the result of a, of a revival. And when Wesley and Whitfield began to preach and revival came to England, people were working 90 hours a week. And the result of that revival was that the 60-hour work week became the standard. And the labor unions in their purest form were, 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 were established. And out of those revivals that have come across history has flowed like a stream the great social reforms of our time and the YMCA and the Salvation Army and yes, the Sunday School. For every good thing that's happened in the world, I think, has been the result of people laying aside the false gods among them and returning to the Lord with their heart Not only vindication, but this and I'm through. There was vision. They saw the Lord among them. You know, I used to, used to read that story about Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with those two men after His, after his crucifixion. Resurrection. And I wondered why in the world they didn't see Him. How, why they couldn't see Him. I know it says that there were scales on their eyes, but I don't know what that means. I wonder why in the world they couldn't see him. But you know, the thing that astounds me more than that even now is that he didn't say to them, hey, it's me. Hey, look here, it's me. I've come back. I've won. I'm here. It's me. He didn't say that. Never did. And I think I know why. I think he didn't want to say, hey, it's me. Because he wanted them to say, hey, it's you. For what God desires more than anything, I think, is for us just to see what he's already doing. 
He wants us to look around and say, hey, that's you doing that. And I've noticed that when revival comes, people have a whole new vocabulary. And strangely enough, they begin to talk about things and give God the credit and the glory for it that they've never done before. You ever notice that? Let me tell you, God is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow, and He's at work doing miracles in the world. He just wants us to see Him. He just wants us to see Him. And somebody said in his book about revival, I don't even know where I read it, that one one time there was a little stream of water that was just kind of trickling down the mountainside. Nobody paid it any attention. Just a little old stream of water, a little, little brook. Up above on the mountainside was this huge reservoir that caught this marvelous amount, this great supply of water. And one day some cracks came into that reservoir and finally it gave way and just tons of water started pouring down the mountainside. No longer could that little stream, that little bed, contain it. It burst out of its banks, and it began to sweep away rocks and trees and everything in its sight. And that little stream that people took for granted all of a sudden became something that was an object of awe and wonder and fear. And those things, that little thing that people didn't even bother to look at, they came from miles and miles just to see it. When revival comes, our little limitations won't be able to hold him. And he who is taken for granted will become a source, an object of awe and wonder and fear. And every pew and chair in this church will be full because people will come to see what they have never seen. God. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, let there begin in us, I pray, the, um, the thirsting after God. We confess our sin. Lord, we remove the strange gods. We come home to the God who loved us, saved us.